So this is one of those light bulb moments. An instance of personal revelation, which was impactful enough that I felt like I just really needed to share. And when I say personal revelation, I don't mean a revelation revealed to me personally, as if I were one of the ancient prophets. But I mean a revelation about me. Kind of one of those deals of, you know, sinner, know thyself. Well, learned a little bit more about myself. And it's interesting the instances in which God shows mercy. There's always talk, songs or sermons about how God's mercy shows up at unexpected times, unexpected ways, and we don't deserve it. And that's not untrue. But when it actually happens, I'm a bit harsh and I really don't like modern evangelical music, the caricature in my head of situations that it seems to convey. But when... Well, let me say this. So, ding, a little bit of a hard shift. At the end of chapter 5 in Romans, Paul is discussing the relationship between sin and righteousness, the concepts of law and grace. And he says that the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And I found myself, shortly after the commission of sin, willful sin, experiencing an interesting mercy of God. And it really struck me that when the penalty for sin, when justice was exacted with Jesus as the substitute, what that opens the door for is mercy. Mercy being this idea of the giving or allowing of something so that someone can get better. So, like when the blind man asked Jesus to have mercy on him, what the man wanted from Jesus was some kind of help so that he could function better, keep going, but keep going in an improved way. Which we can't do if we receive the penalty for our sin. Penalty for our sin is, well, exactly that. It's punishment, and it kind of stops there. And that's the nature of punishment. And if the, pe- the wages of sin is death, well, there's no getting better if you're dead. Because you can't move on beyond that. So, in the death of Christ, God exacts punishment satisfying his righteousness and his justice and allowing him, therefore, to legitimately extend mercy to us so that we may learn and grow and keep going, doing better. Now, that's not to say that we should continue sinning so that such grace and mercy may abound, may it never be. What I am saying is that I just, in it, I don't know how often God does this with people, but with me, He did it this time. When 
He showed me an interesting mercy. And it ties back to the temptations in the wilderness. If you haven't gathered, one of the things that I do with this is I try and read Scripture from a literary standpoint. And what I mean by that is I really, really try to take into account the literary genre in which it is written, that God chose to convey it, the audience to which it's been conveyed, because that's helpful. Not a strict constructionist in that sense. I'm not limiting it strictly to that to try and somehow box in theology. And I'm trying to look for themes. Not so much hidden meanings, but themes. Because sometimes it's within those that we actually see the applicability of certain aspects of Scripture to the rest of us. Alright, and I feel like I'm about to be wandering off, so let's dive right into this. So, essentially what God brought me back to was the first of Jesus' temptations in the wilderness. Now, there are two accounts of the temptations, at least two with which I'm familiar. You've got the account in Matthew and the account in Luke. And the temptations are actually in slightly different orders, but they have the first one the same. Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days, fasting. Now, fasting is not a complete abstinence from food. There is also definitely the ingestion of water. I should have said consumption. That's better. But it does also say that at the end of these 40 days, Jesus was hungry. And it is also reasonable to deduce that the human being, Jesus of Nazareth, was experiencing the mental and medical side effects of such hunger. And Satan comes along and says, You're hungry. Turn these stones into bread. Eat. Feed yourself. And Jesus says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And at least, I'm, forgive me if I'm caricaturing pastors or preachers or chapel speakers or self-help books or whomever, will tend to focus on that. And it's not untrue. What I want to do is look, though, a little bit more at the nature of the temptation itself. Jesus was experiencing a situation of need. Actually, hold on. I finished that sentence because I started it. Let me back up. I'll probably elaborate this a little bit more in a different installment or whatnot. But as I was considering not just that temptation, but all three of them, something struck me. These are often classified as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, lust meaning simply desire. So fleshly or bodily desire, uh, internal or mental desire, and then pride. And I guess those aren't wrong. But I don't know what they mean, really. I mean, I guess I do. I just explained it. But they're so overused, and nobody just really talks like that anymore, that it misses the mark on really being helpful. So, I don't think I've changed the categories, but I have come up with different labeling. The first temptation with bread, it's a temptation of want. And by want here, we mean lack the traditional older meaning of the English word. The temptation regarding deprivation. 
And when Jesus is told to uh, fling himself down from the heights of the temple, that is the temptation of the will, which I can get into at a different time. And when Jesus is shown the kingdoms of the earth and promised power, if he would simply bow down before Satan, well, that is a temptation of pride. What one could have, what one deserves, what one is owed. We're going to focus on that temptation of want, though. If we take a step back and look at the human condition, the human being has needs. Physical, emotional, psychological, in order to live healthily and thrive. And Jesus was experiencing the deprivation of one of those fundamental basic needs. And when being told or enticed, because we are tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own desires, well, what would desire could Jesus have been experiencing? Well, the desire for food, the the desire to satiate bodily hunger, to have his stomach not be in knots, to not be feeling the mental effects, to not be irritable. And so what's interesting, when we are faced with this temptation of want, a lack of something, what the devil does is he presents Jesus with a scenario of meeting his own need by whatever means is within his power. And that, I think, no, that I know is something to which all of us can relate. Because it's at that kind of a point where rubber hits the road. Where when we're experiencing something like, okay, hunger, or thirst, or joblessness, or loneliness, that we will grasp at whatever is at hand in order to meet that need. And based upon the severity of the need, or some people would say the legitimacy of the need, we are all too willing to justify what we grasp at in order to meet it. An easy example is Jean Valjean from Les Miserables, who landed him in prison, stealing bread. Why did he steal bread? To give to his starving sister and her starving child. You'd have to be pretty heartless to fault him for that. But that's kind of exactly what he did. When faced with the deprivation, he reached for whatever was within his power to mitigate it, regardless of the effects on character. And so, when Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, What he's saying, or one of the things he's indicating, is that just because you can reach for a certain option to solve your own problem, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the best one. And you have to consider the other effects, possibly snowball effects, ramifications of reputation, other things like that, which would come into play. Now, I'm starting to sound like one of those pastors that I usually, with which I usually become frustrated. So I'm going to dive a little bit deeper here 
doing my best to walk the line between what is pertinent for this, keeping in mind you, and not getting too much into the stuff that really was just between me and God. So, the personal revelation that I had was this idea that I am lonely. Like, I really am. I am lonely. I crave, I'm almost desperate for interaction with other people. And because I guess one of my love languages, to use that term, is physical touch, that can also become a little bit of an obsessive thing, shall we say. And so when faced with a scenario in which I was tempted to address this need by available means, God brought back to mind this temptation of Jesus. And something struck me. Now, I'm not going to die on this theological hill, but I started thinking about instances in which substances were changed. Jesus changed water into wine. God turned the watery river of the Nile into blood. And the thing about those two things is that both wine and blood are aqueous solutions. They're water-based. And so God didn't do a wholesale chemical alteration of things. He didn't just completely negate the laws of his own creation in turning one substance into another. He said that was just an interesting thing that brings me to my next point. And I said, I'm not going to die on that theological hill. I'm not going to make a big deal about that part. But the illustration that led me to really, really holds some water. Jesus is told to turn these stones into bread. Stones can't become bread. There's no chemical link. By chemical, I mean chemistry. There's no chemical link between rocks and wheat. And so what's interesting, when the devil tempts Jesus to do whatever is in his own power to meet the very real needs that he is experiencing, the devil is actually tempting him to grasp at something that won't actually work. And here's what I mean. You eat a stone. You're desperate enough that you'll almost eat anything. You eat a stone. And there is, let's say, some immediate relief. You've got something in your stomach. So your stomach feels that sensation of ingestion, being full. It goes to work, doing its thing, starting to attempt to digest what has been inserted. And so there is a bit of relief, but it's brief or momentary, however long that moment lasts. And when the stone can't be digested, now the body starts to respond in ways that are not good. And what was a momentary relief becomes a particularly serious medical problem. Now, this is where I know I'm going to start sounding like everything that people have heard. You know, don't go to the drinkings. Don't go to the sexes. But, I mean, it's true. It really is true. We start grasping at these various things to meet our psychological, particularly our psychological and our emotional needs. However valid those needs may be. 
and we start eating these stones over and over and over again. And eventually, we become so used to being sick that we have no concept of what it's like to be well. We become so self-sufficient, he said in air quotes, that we have no concept of what it's like to actually live under the guiding counsel of somebody else that would actually show us a better way. And in our self-sufficiency, we become self-absorbed. Because at the end of the day, I have a need, and I'm going to be consumed with meeting my need. I experienced this a little bit when a friend got married recently. So I get emotionally attached and afraid, and I don't like change, particularly relational change. And I am highly grateful that this friend knows me well enough to know this. And even on the day of his wedding was, you know, interacting with me for my sake regarding the changes and transitions that were going to take place later that evening. But I could have very easily overburdened him or another one of our friends who was a groomsman with my, at least at the time, so it felt legitimate psychological or emotional need. And I could have grasped at the first thing at hand that was within my power to meet that need, not realizing that I would have at least been a downer on somebody else's happy evening, possibly caused a little bit of damage in my relationships because of how I went about it. And I think we would all admit that when we are experiencing these needs, it does become all about me. And I will justify whatever means are necessary or available to meet the need. Because what I want is the relief. A man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In Jeremiah, he actually says, your words were found and I ate them. I don't remember where that is. I think it's Jeremiah 19. But you have a Bible or an app. Look it up. And I'm going to say the pastor thing. Even though sometimes I don't like it. It's frustrating. But it, the frustrating thing is that it really is true. It's by the word of God. The counsel of God. These other things. That actually allow us to live life well. Because... I can satisfy the need, but what kind of a person am I? Or, if I were Jean Valjean, hypothetically, I could not steal the bread, and I would entail suffering. I'm going to pause that, because the analogy dies a little bit soon. Let's go to Robin Hood. Steal from the rich, give to the poor. Did the poor need it? Yeah. Did the rich deserve it? And I guess not necessarily, but let's take the Christian thing, who really deserves anything? But were the rich bad people? All of them? Simply because they had more material wealth? Did any of these landowners or estate owners actually manage their estates well and earn these livings? And therefore do good also by their tenants and the people working their lands? Were some of them righteous knights? Noble lords? Generous clerics? Oh, but you say the poor needed it. Okay, 
Were some of these people not charitable? And so when we start doing whatever we need to to meet these needs, we almost become like Robin Hood, self-righteous, self-absorbed, judgmental, even. What kind of a man was Robin Hood really? All in the pursuit of meeting a legitimate need by whatever means necessary. So at this point, we're probably coming to a close. I do hope that was all clear. So to recap, if we take a step back and look at human existence, we actually can tie it directly back to the three temptations that Jesus experienced in the wilderness. We are lured, we are tempted, Jesus' own brother says, we are tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own desires. Well, what kind of desires do we have? Well, we have logistical ones or physical ones, needs, loneliness, hunger, things like that. And that's what the temptation regarding the bread and the rocks is addressing. And so when we're experiencing a need, we need to be careful to not simply grasp at whatever means are available, but to actually sit back and sit with God in that need. I have no idea what God is going to do with you whenever you experience these needs. I don't know what he does with me half the time when I'm experiencing these needs. But I have to step back. I have to pray. I have to deal with God in real time. And so do you. And this is the point where a pastor would give some kind of like a bullet point or a specific application. And I can't. I'm not going to. Because I don't know what your needs are. And when you sit there, not grasping at whatever the available means of meeting them are, I don't know what God's going to do with you. I don't know what he's going to be, quote, teaching you. I don't know what other thing he's going to be setting you up for. No idea. But I know it's the right thing to do for your sanctification, for your virtue, to be a good man and not just a satisfied one. All right. Till next time, deuces.